How many people here have ever seen Sesame Street, either as a child or a parent? Or familiar with that? Okay. One of the favorite, one of my favorite songs in Sesame Street is uh, "One of These Things Is Not Like the Other." Now we're gonna, I'm gonna sing the song for you. Okay. One of these things is not like the other. One of these things isn't the same. Can you guess which thing is not like the other? Before I finish this song, I just gave the wrong lyrics. But okay, hey. what's a guy? What's a guy got to do to get an applause? Oh, let's okay. Let's not do this anymore. See the irony around Palm Sunday. Top left corner is a May Day parade in Moscow where Russia has an annual parade of its military might. Top right photo is President Trump's inauguration. Lots of pomp and circumstance. Bottom picture, Palm Sunday. One of these things is not like the other. And for that, we can be eternally grateful. Palm Sunday was planned out by Jesus and not anybody else. He had either made some arrangements or God had uh, given him a, a prophetic insight. They knew that a donkey was available and actually the foal of a donkey was available like in the scripture reading that was read this morning from Matthew 11. And it just kind of happened. Now it was interesting, interesting convergence of events. In Bethany, it was kind of a a shabby little suburb outside of Jerusalem. Bethany had a reputation for being a home to the poor and the sick, and it wasn't really high-value real estate. There was no real estate bubble in in Bethany, okay? You really didn't want to... Where are you from? I'm from Bethany. That's kind of what people, the reputation Bethany had. But Lazarus lived there, and just before Palm Sunday, Lazarus had died but not. Well, he did die, but Jesus raised him from the dead. And people were ecstatic and gobsmacked, and they just couldn't believe what had happened. So all these pilgrims from Bethany, when Jesus started going into Jerusalem, they just tagged along. You would too, just to see, what is this guy going to do next? This is amazing. And just outside of Jerusalem, Jesus stopped, and he got a couple of his buddies to go and borrow literally borrow, the, the colt and the foal for his ride into town. And I think more people, the word got out. In the social media of the day, they did things old school. They talked to each other. You remember that? Face-to-face communication? It's a little dated, but some people, I've heard some people still do it. Anyway, word got out in Jerusalem, this Jesus guy is coming in. So there were a bunch of people with Jesus and a bunch of um, curiosity, curiosity seekers coming out of Jerusalem as well to see what was going to happen. And here comes Jesus riding on a donkey, riding on a foal. Now, as someone, I know I say this every sun, uh, Palm Sunday, but it just dazzles me the fact that Jesus could ride on an unbroken colt in the middle of that rowdy crowd without breaking any bones. And sorry, maybe I grew up with horses breaking them and them breaking me. And if I ever, maybe that explains the post-concussion syndrome. But anyway, you just don't ride 
an unbroken animal in the middle of a big crowd like that. But he did. The symbolism was so important because in that passage in Matthew that you read, there's a, there's a quote from the Old Testament that says, here comes your king riding in peace. Jesus is saying, hey, I'm the king, I'm the Messiah, but I'm coming in peace. And he's arriving. Now, put yourselves into the minds of different cast of characters that day. So he's on a burrowed donkey surrounded by these religious enthusiasts and passers-by. Most of them probably did not have a hot clue what Jesus was all about. The disciples, I think they were excited. Well, finally, three years of living rough now, things are looking really good. We're going to take over. There's going to be a regime change here in Jerusalem Things are really looking up, and we're finally going to throw those nasty Romans out, and Jesus is the man. This is going to be great. And we're in. We're in his inner circle, and this is going to be really good. The crowd was excited because they thought the same thing, literally bread and circuses. They thought, wow, Jesus fed all these people. He raises people from the dead. He heals the sick. This is going to be fantastic. Let the good times roll. Praise to the king. The Roman authorities, I think, they'd be worried about another rebellion. The Jews had a history of rebelling against Roman rule. And it never ended well for the Jews. But somehow they wouldn't get the memo to just stop and be docile. And there's always this undercurrent of discontent stirring around. And I think the Romans... We're kind of calling, quietly calling out the riot squad and just say, okay, let's just keep an eye on these crazy Jews and see what they're up to. The religious authorities, they were threatened. They were ticked off. In fact, they were already plotting how to kill Jesus. So Palm Sunday was a joyful day. And there were literally kids parading around with palm branches and things like that. That's what you would do in that day when you'd celebrate something spontaneous happening. Nowadays, we put on our hockey jerseys, Steve, and celebrate something good. Next spring, Lord willing, at this time, I will be wearing a Jets jersey. But that's next year. Anyway, that's, we'll have healing prayer for all the Jets fans after the service. But you could see this spontaneous happy occasion. There's so much underlying tension in Palm Sunday. And you have to admire Jesus' courage. Because on Palm Sunday, he enters Jerusalem on a donkey's colt. That's a messianic sign if there ever ever was one. He might as well have rented out an airplane if they had been invented at the time saying, Jesus is King of the Jews, circulating around Jerusalem saying, I'm the Messiah. That's basically what he was saying. He was definitely going public. And it was like putting a target on his head or wearing a t-shirt saying, hey, I am the Messiah. Or just, I am. Because that was God's way of identifying himself, right? This was an invasion of love and peace, not shock and awe. Like in the first Gulf War, uh, the first President Bush says, yeah, it's going to be invasion. It's going to be invasion of shock and awe. You just watch. Things are going to happen. There was no shock and awe here. It was love and peace and celebration and joy. 
The creator of the cosmos allows these puny humans to torture him to death like a common criminal. Even Roman citizens were not allowed to be crucified. It was such an awful, painful death. But Jesus knew what he was going into. He knew the, the maelstrom, the, the, all the stress and the whirlwind that he was going into. He chose to do it very intentionally. It wasn't accidental. It was planned out. Now, all these three parades here up in the screen, they all took a lot of planning. Got to get the tanks lined up. The policemen have to ride their motorcycles in just the right way, in just the right formation, or else they'll get chewed out after the parade is over. But this parade, the only planning was grabbing a donkey, and that was it. But the message that Jesus conveyed in that spontaneous parade was one of love and sacrifice and servanthood and shalom. Shalom isn't just peace as in a ceasefire or the absence of, or of fighting. Shalom means well-being and blessing and thriving in every way possible. And that's what Jesus' message was all about. He came to bring shalom to people. So that homes would not be full of bickering and hatred. So that churches would not be full of enmity and competition. So that society would be a place where people could thrive and be loved and accepted and follow God's God-given dreams for them. And they would do well so the planet would thrive the way it was supposed to in the first place, when God created it. That's what Jesus was about. Jesus came to restore and recreate planet Earth. And Palm Sunday was a way of publicly announcing his arrival and giving people the opportunity, are you going to follow me as king or not? Now, people misinterpreted that because as human beings, we only see what we want to see, right? We only see what we want to see. So the disciples said, Aha, Jesus is king. That means we're in the cabinet. Good times. The crowd says, Jesus is king. Aha, the Romans are out. Good. The Romans said, Jesus is king. Uh-oh, stomp on him like a bug. Let's get rid of the competition. The religious authorities say, Jesus is king? I don't think so. That's blasphemy. Let's kill him. That's the response. But people only see what they want to see. What they didn't understand, that Jesus' kingdom is an upside-down kingdom. It's an upside-down kingdom. Let me explain what we mean by that. God's way up is down. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, you've got to be a servant of all. You can't, it, God is not into people's self-promotion, self-aggrandizement, aggrandizement, Making yourself bigger than everybody else? Not into that. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, you have to be the servant of all. Jesus says some remarkable things. He said, some who seem least important now will be the greatest then, and some who are the greatest now will be least important then. Or, as is quoted often in church potluck suppers, 
the first shall be last and the last shall be first. People would always quote that verse at me and tease me and make sure that there wasn't any pie left at the end of the dessert line. But, but you get the point. What Jesus is trying to say, those people who seem really important now, really on top of the heap, are just living in a house of cards. Their throne is built out of a house of cards and it will crumble very quickly. Look at human history. Look at the 20th century. Stalin, top of the heap for a while. He has the power and he does kill millions of people. Hitler, on top of the heap for a while. He has the power and he kills millions of people. Pol Pot in Cambodia, same thing. All these dictators, where are they now? They're already decomposed. They're already dead. But Jesus is still king. And whoever is on top of the heap right now, maybe some of those people represented in the parades we saw earlier in the sermon, eventually, sooner or later, they will decompose as well. And Jesus will still be king. And his upside-down kingdom is slowly and gradually taking over planet Earth. And we are invited to be part of that upside-down kingdom. How do you get into the kingdom, the upside-down kingdom? I tell you the truth, unless you turn from your sins and become like little children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, God's way up is down. To enter into God's kingdom, we have to recognize our need for him, humble ourselves, and enter in. It's a little bit like the entrance to the children's garden in Assiniboine Park. You can walk right into that gate. You can try to walk through the door. All you're going to get is a concussion or maybe a bent nose. To get through that door, you literally have to duck down. It's about this high. I know. I've tried it. Been there. I've got the scars. You've got to bend down to enter into that garden. In the same way, to enter into God's kingdom... We have to turn from our sins. That means do a 180 and saying, God, I repent of that stuff. I don't want to live like that. I don't want to be dominated by my sin anymore and become like little children. Not not childish, childlike. Huge difference between being childish and childlike. There are a lot of adult Christians who are very childish and it's kind of embarrassing because they stump and want their way and they're self-centered and they haven't grown up emotionally. But to be childlike means to see the beauty of God and see our need for Jesus. And just like the heart of these little kids here this morning, say, yeah, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm sorry for the things I've done. I'm sorry for my sin. I'm turning away from the way living like that, and I want to follow Jesus. Now that takes courage, insight, and maybe a little bit of holy desperation, doesn't it, to follow Jesus? Right? To see our need for him. It is such a wonderful thing to repent of all the junk in our life and say, what's this universal symbol mean? Yeah. You know what? Pretty much every language in the world, even if you're fighting in a war where people don't speak your language, it's kind of a universal symbol, right? 
That's what we say to Jesus. I surrender. I give up. Sometimes in North America, the gospel, the good news about Jesus, is laid out like a bit of a sales pitch. And we think, you could improve your life. You could make things so much better. You'll become more successful if you follow Jesus. Those things might be true. But at the heart of the gospel is us saying, I surrender. I give up. That's what repentance is. I come to the end of myself. Because if we don't turn from our sin and our self-oriented way of living, and if we don't become like little children, we won't enter the kingdom, the upside-down kingdom. We'll always be on the outside looking in. I don't know if you've done that. I think most of us have. And it's a good reminder for us to, to do a little check in our hearts, do a little cardiac checkup, spiritual cardiac checkup. First of all, yeah, take your pulse, see if you're listening. I know you're listening. But secondly, saying, okay, what's my heart like today? Am I following Jesus? Is my heart soft towards Jesus? Or am I just kind of doing my own thing? Do I want, am I following Jesus just to get something from him? Almost everybody in that crowd on Palm Sunday was trying to get something from Jesus. The disciples thought, hey, all right, cabinet positions, corner office, things are looking really good. The crowd said, wow, bread and circuses. Jesus will, they, they had a consumer attitude to Jesus. Jesus will give us what we want. People were trying to get something out of him. At best, to enter into the upside-down kingdom, to be reconciled with the Creator, we need to say, God, I surrender, and I humble myself. I bow down. And Jesus says, man, if you do that with a change in your attitude, with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, a repentant heart, you can enter into my family. And then, whoa! Let the party begin. Let the good times roll, literally. But that's what has to happen for us to enter into the upside-down kingdom. Now this Jesus, who died for us, there's a description of him in Philippians chapter 2. It's another reading from the lectionary for today. And I just want to leave you with some thoughts. This is the ultimate example of humility and servanthood that we follow. This is the leader of the upside-down kingdom that we follow. Jesus, though he was God and is God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Jesus did not cling to his rights. Compare that with Adam. Jesus is often called the second Adam in the New Testament, like God, God's remake, redo of humanity. The first Adam, he was trying to grab at equality with God wasn't he? Adam and Eve, when they have the temptation, the serpent comes up and says, you guys can be like God. Do you want to be like God? Just eat this. Yeah, I want to be like God. <sighs> and he grabs at it. By contrast, Jesus did not cling to or grab onto his rights to be God, even though he was God. He voluntarily gave them up. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. 
can't imagine, cannot fathom what that must have been like. I try to make comparisons to it. I, I know I've done it in messages saying it's kind of like us becoming a, a goldfish or some lower form of life. That, that's such a, a poor analogy of, of Jesus, our creator, becoming one of us. And not just showing up as a full-grown adult, going right back and starting just being conceived in a woman's womb and being born just like everybody else. He wasn't even born into a palace. I mean, come on. If you're the creator and you want to show up and you dazzle people, you want shock and awe, right? You want a parade. At least a few tanks. I mean, come on, something to dazzle people. No poor little obscure village in the corner of the Roman Empire. Just doesn't, just doesn't make sense. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God. He was not calling his own shots. He said, everything I do, I, the Father tells me what to do. I and the Father are, I and the Father are one. We're on the same page. And I follow him. I get my marching orders from him. And he literally died a criminal's death on a cross. He was precipitating that process when he marched into, rode into Jerusalem that day on Palm Sunday. It wasn't about his ego, but Jesus was saying, hey, I'm the guy you're waiting for. I've come with a kingdom of peace and life and shalom. If you want to get in on that, all you got to do is say, I surrender and follow me. A few days later, many of the same people who were cheering him on on Palm Sunday were saying, kill him, crucify him. That's how quickly human opinion can turn. Just change in a dime, just like that. Jesus appeared in human form, humbles himself in obedience to God and dies a criminal's death on a cross. Even Roman citizens didn't get crucified. It was just for the people right at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. But because Jesus did this, he humbled himself. God elevated him to the highest, the place of highest honor above all other names. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. See, God's way up is down. And Jesus has shown us the way to live by humbling ourselves, admitting our need for him. And then he restores us and he lifts us up. He elevates us. So I don't care what kind of a job evaluation you get at your job. I don't care what your neighbors think of you. It doesn't even matter what your family of origin thinks of you. And in fact, even more important, it doesn't even matter what you think of yourself. Hopefully good things. But ultimately, God evaluates us. God gives us our value. And when we come to Jesus, when we say, I surrender, then he lifts us up. He gives us a new identity, a new family, a new way of living, a new purpose in life, a new direction. It's like, Everything is gradually made new inside of us. 
Now, is that a good deal or what? I'm not trying to pitch something to you. I'm just want to say, come on, folks. If you want to get in on this, really encourage you to go public and get baptized and identify with Jesus. Baptism's all about the way we, you know, you've, a lot of you have seen what happens over here, right? We lower people in the water, always bring them back up. We don't count to ten even. We just, right up. Reason we do that, it, it's a public way of identifying with Jesus. Yeah, I'm going to die to the old way I live. And I'm, when I'm raised up in the water, it's like, it, it demonstrates what's already happened in my life. Wow, I follow Jesus. Okay? It's a really powerful symbol. It's meant to be public. And there are some countries in the world where it's very, very dangerous to go public. And I understand that. I read a story once of a, of a Muslim lady who baptized herself in the bathtub because she would have lost her life. And that, that makes total sense. But in Canada, generally, people won't kill you if you get publicly baptized, which is encouraging. So on May 7, we're going to be baptizing some folks here at Elam. And I just invite you, if you're thinking about that, pray about it, you got questions, come and talk to me. Because it's a way of going public. It's a way of saying, I surrender. God's way up is down, and he lifts us up. He promotes us. He gives us our value, and that is a good thing to get in on. For the rest of us, as we follow Jesus, keep in mind that God wants us to lean into him, to stay close to him, to humble our hearts, not get distracted or pulled off course, but to lean into the values of his kingdom. It's so easy when we live in another place, in another, in another society, where leadership is all about who yells the loudest in the room, where leadership is all about self-promotion, where success is like climbing to the top of some ladder somewhere, but to be in the upside-down kingdom, the eternal kingdom that's really going to last, that's something totally different, totally different. And we can be assured that we are part of something that's going to last forever and is full of goodness and joy and peace. And it's not pie in the sky by and by. It's for us to experience right now. Even if our life circumstances are totally negative and chaotic and unpredictable, the peace that the shalom that Jesus brings, I think, shines even brighter in the darkness. When you go into a really dark room, even a little bitty LED light or a little tiny light makes a huge difference, right? You notice that? Pitch black is really scary, but even if there's a little bit of source of light. So the shalom, the peace that Jesus gives us shines so much brighter in the world's darkness. That's what he wants to offer us today. Let's pray. Jesus, we know that following you is risky, but we've got no other options. We don't want to do anything else. We don't want to follow anyone else. 
But Lord, I pray that you would encourage these folks, folks who may not be baptized or praying about it, or folks that have been following you for a long time, whether it's 10 days, 10 months, or 10 years, or longer, Lord, we all need to be reminded that we're part of your kingdom, the upside-down kingdom. We confess our need for you, and we pray for your shalom to be evident in our lives, in our families, in this community. We pray this confidently in your name, in Jesus' name, amen.